Good morning. Last week we were uh, in Micah, the first of three messages. Our Savior is promised. Today we're in John chapter 3, verse 16. Our Savior is sent. And next week we'll be in Luke chapter 2. Our Savior is born. So let me read John 3.16 to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was some years ago, somebody kind of walked us through this verse, stepping word to word, really does build a sense of majesty. I'd like to share it with you. God, there is no greater love, so loved, no greater degree, the world, no greater number, that he gave, no greater act, his one and only son, no greater gift, that whoever, no greater invitation, believes, no greater simplicity, in him, no greater person, shall not per- perish, no greater deliverance, but no greater difference, have no greater certainty, eternal life, no greater possession. This week as I was reflecting on John 3.16, It occurred to me that this is almost too good to be true. Have you ever heard that expression? Have you ever used it? It's too good to be true. I get a lot of emails that are too good to be true. You just won $8 million. (laughs) Or, hey, we're over here in, you know, Pakistan or someplace, and uh, we have a, a safety deposit box with your name on it. It's too good to be true. True or truth is something that you can stand on, something you can act on. It's a stunning claim that we have here, a grand offer. I mean, it's so grand, you wonder who can make this stuff up. I mean, it's really out of this world. And the only way to test it is by comparison, and it's really incomparable. You realize that if something happened in history and it has no parallel, we call it a miracle. Because we judge the veracity of something that is reported in history by its repetition or something comparable to it. If it's incomparable, we say it probably didn't really happen. Somebody must be making it up. So you see what we have here in John 3.16 really is a stunning claim. And I suppose the only way to test it is to stand on it and act on it and see if it's true. 
Interestingly enough, in John chapter 18, and you can turn to John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28 through verse 37, Jesus, who's been arrested and he's been interrogated by the highest authority in the, among the Jewish people, the high priest and his attendants and officers. And now Jesus has been sent to the more high authority, and that is Pilate who represents the authority of Rome. He's the provincial governor. He's the governor of Judea. And so, his first question to Jesus is, are you king of the Jews? He wants to know if Jesus has earthly political aspirations that might threaten his reign, his rule, and that of Rome. Jesus says, my kingdom isn't of this world. Worldly power is no interest to me. But then we get to verse 37, and this is really an amazing thing here, I think. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter, and I'm going to translate this very woodenly right from the Greek language it's really not that hard. Jesus says in, in this order, for this or unto this I was born, and for this or unto this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I was born. But by the way, there's, there's nowhere else in the New Testament where Jesus speaks about his own birth. He says, I was born for a reason. I came into the world for a reason, to bear witness, to testify to the truth. In other words, you can stand on my words, you can act on my words. And it really does stand to reason that he says, Jesus, um, when he finishes that sentence, he says, uh, anyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Some translations just say listens to me. It means the same thing. But what it does tell us by using the word my voice is that you can trust his words. You can stand on what he says. You can act on it. It's truth. It's trustworthy. You can say his words are truth. That's what we're learning here. And so it does beg the question, is Jesus for real? Is he a credible witness? What is the truth that Jesus was born to testify and came into the world to testify to or to reveal? 
we might ask a more fundamental question or a first question. What does John, this is called John's gospel or the gospel of John, what does John think of the truth? Does he have high respect for it? What does John mean by the truth? Well, let's turn over to his first letter, the very first verses. It gives us a real strong picture of what John thinks is true or how he gauges truth, what his standard of truth is. Listen to what John says about himself in his own words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at or upon and have touched, handled with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, made visible, you see, in a way that he could hear it, he could see it, and he could touch it. He says the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we, we testify to it. We bear witness to it. We say this is true. And then he says that which we have seen, that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. What John thinks of Jesus is that he is life in a person, the eternal life. He is the life, which is a pretty stunning thing that he says. But let's go back and look a little bit further at what John thinks about the truth. Let's look at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, they open with John describing Jesus as the Word that was with God and was God. The Word which was preexistent was with God and was God. And he goes on in the following verses, verse 3, 4, and 5, he describes his agency in cooperation with God in the creation of, of everything. He calls him the light, the light of men. And he says the darkness has not overcome this light. He keeps going on like that. He talks about the coming of a witness to him. And then we get to verse 14, and he says, the word became human. The word became flesh. And then he says something rather remarkable. He says, uh, he put up his tent right in our midst. He camped right in our midst. This is a very word that would be used in general Greek in histories that talk about campaigns when, a, you know, when someone would settle down and put up a tent for the night or make a camp 
for the night and lodge. This is the word you would use, but he's not referring to some kind of a army on the move or a campaign. He's going back into the Old Testament to this remarkable thing that happened in the Old Testament when God took up residence in the midst of his people and he dwelt in the middle of the tribes of the people, surrounded by the people, right in the center of them in what was called a tent or a tabernacle. And it was the tent of meeting, also called the tent of testimony or witness. It was where Moses, as a mediator to the people of God, would go and meet with God, and God would reveal things to Moses for the sake of his people. You get it? The Logos has taken up that same position among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. And then he goes on to say something even more remarkable. He says, we beheld, we, not just I, he didn't say I'm alone in this, he says, we beheld his glory. And I I can remember reading this as a very young believer, young in age and young in faith and experience, and wondering, what did they see? Because when I think of glory, you know, I think of just like, piercing light that makes you cover your eyes. Somehow the embodiment of the presence of God just blowing you back, you know, with the radiation of who he is. And I thought, we beheld his glory? And he he tells us what his glory is, and I didn't understand this at the time. The next words are the definition of his glory. We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, full, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, that's his glory. How do I know this? Well, it's in the Bible back in Exodus. Turn to Exodus If you went back into chapter 33 of Exodus, God wanted Moses to ascend a high mountain where God would meet Moses. He had something to give him, something that he wanted to reveal to him and then bring down to his people, but they had to prepare. And in that preparation, in the process, Moses let his heart be known to God, and he said, He said, let me see your glory. Let me see your glory. And God said, I can arrange that. But I can't let you see my face. I'll have to put you in the cleft of a rock. And my glory will pass by you. And we're told that in the very next chapter, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And I want to read you that verse. It's very important. You have to imagine Moses, and he wants to see the glory of God, and God passes by. And this is what Moses sees, verse 6, or I should say 
hears. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. See, he hears these words we're going to read. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed ve'emeth. Steadfast love and faithfulness is how we translate it, or this translation renders the Hebrew. John renders it a little different, and it's clearly what he is saying when he says, the only begotten Son, or the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, full of what God revealed to Moses, his character, his character. Jesus is the bearer of who God is. His glory is his steadfast love and faithfulness, his grace and truth. That's what we beheld in Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate. He is the human expression. There are other ways to say this. What's your heart like, God? Look at Jesus. He's the human expression of God's heart. What's your desire for me? Do you want the best for me? Do you care for me? These all are reflected in Jesus. Look at verse 18. It gets even more remarkable. No one has ever seen the Father. You see that? It says it right there in verse 18. No one has ever seen the Father. So what do we do? Wait, he's not finished. The one and only Son. Some, some readings that we have come down to us in the Greek actually say God there, which would parallel word, because the first verse is, and the word was with the Father, with the God, and the word was God, and now it's picked up in verse 18, the one and only God in the bosom of the Father. So the sense of this incredible intimacy and oneness that is reflected or expressed in humanness in Jesus Christ. And then note these words. He has made him known. This word that we translate made him known is all one word. It's the very last word. It's the punctuation mark. It's the exclamation mark of these 18 verses. And it can be rendered in different ways. It has to do with explaining. You know, I'm kind of dense. Could you, could you sit down with me and tell me in my own words, my own language, in detail. I want a full explanation. That's what John is saying Jesus is of the Father. Here's some other examples of truth in the Gospel of John. Turn to chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. Jesus is here speaking, and he says, If you remain in my word, 
In other words, if you stand on my word, if you act on my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know. And the word know doesn't just mean facts will rattle around in your brain. You will recognize the truth. You will be familiar with the truth. I thought a little bit about truth this week. Do you know what's true? We can know things are true, but when you, when it's true for you, it makes a difference. The truth becomes dynamic. The truth makes a difference if you say it's true, and when you say it's true, you mean I stand on it. I act on it. Then it's powerful. Otherwise, it's just a dead fact. It's a relic. It's something you point at and you go, ooh. But it has no power. It's not dynamic. It makes no difference. But for other people, it may make a great difference. That's what Jesus is saying here. You are truly my disciples, and you will know, you will recognize the truth, and listen to the outcome. The truth will set you free. It will liberate you. People have done great things, fought great wars, gone to the ends of the earth, laid down their lives for liberty. Jesus says, you'll find it if you act on my words and you stand on my words. You'll be my disciple. What did Jesus bear witness to? Well, to God, but there's something specific. Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 6, this is our last example, but there are many. If you start at the beginning of the Gospel of John and you read to the right all the way to the end, you'll come across the word truth many, many times. True, the adjective, and truth, the noun. I, he says, am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You see, Jesus himself is a very special delivery. For God so loved the world that he gave. But in the very next verse, he says, sent. Jesus himself, in John 18, 37, says, for this, unto this I was born, for this, unto this I have come into the world to bear witness, to testify to the truth. And do you know what Pilate said? It's in the very next words of the very next verse. Pilate said, what is truth? The noun truth occurs 25 times in the Gospel of John, and that's the very last occurrence in the words of the governor of Rome over Judea to the expressed 
purpose stated by Jesus, what is truth. Jesus came to bear witness to it. And when he did, God demonstrated his love. In fact, his love is sent special delivery in Jesus Christ. And I want to look at three things very quickly. So loved, Jesus, you see, testifies. He brings the truth of God's love. And I want to look at how he does that. He gave, and I want us to see the truth that Jesus brings about that expression of his love and his one and only son. So love, Jesus, we're told, is the expression of God's love so that we say, so loved he that he gave his only son. This is God's love expressed in the very person of Jesus, but it's epitomized in the cross. How do you define this love? And many people are baffled in this world. What is love? Is it a great power that washes over you? And then sometimes after a few years of marriage, people say, where did the love go? And love is, man, it's the heartbeat of art and poetry and life itself. Man, love makes the world go round. All we need is love. So what is love? God defines this love as the love that is so selfless that it will sacrifice itself for you, for another. And that's why the cross is a significant epitomization of the love of God. And this is foreshadowed by Jesus' words to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. Now, see, we're in John chapter 3, verse 16, but the chapter begins with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. In other words, he's a religious leader, and in fact, the first verse says that he's a leader among the Jewish people. So people look up to Nicodemus, and yet Nicodemus, and we're told this in the very first and second verse, Nicodemus says, we believe you are from God because you do things no one else can do. So think about this. The people look to Nicodemus, but at night, he comes to Jesus. And why does he come to Jesus? Because he thinks Jesus is from God. But still, why does he come? Because he wants more. He wants a deeper knowledge, a deeper life with God. It's not enough that he knows so much about God, that he is a leader to others, showing them how to get more of, know more of, live more of God. 
He comes to Jesus, and Jesus talks to him about very simple things. He says, you have to be born from above. Because when Jesus was talking to Pilate in John chapter 18, Pilate said, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, I'm not a king in this world. My kingdom is not of this world. I come to bear witness to the truth, a truth that is not of this world. And as he's talking to Nicodemus about these things, Nicodemus is a bit perplexed. And then in verse 12, Jesus says to Nicodemus, if, if I have spoken to you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I speak to you about heavenly things? Then verse 13, no one has gone up into heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man, which is an allusion to the heavenly Son of Man of Daniel 7, who will bring the kingdom. And I'm sure Nicodemus knew about Daniel 7 and what Jesus was talking about. He was alluding to himself as that heavenly son of man who's descended from God, who's able to reveal things that are heavenly. And the subject of prophecy. And in verse 14 and 15, we don't hear Nicodemus again here, in verse 14 and 15, he says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted the serpent, now this is from Numbers chapter 21, verses five through nine, there was a plague of snakes and the people were being bitten and dying. And Moses appealed to the Lord and the Lord said, put up, a, a fashion a symbolic serpent, serpent and put it up high so the people can see it. And whoever looks at that serpent, will be spared, they'll be healed, they'll be rescued. And Jesus says, just as Moses held up that serpent, I, the Son of Man, must be held up. And he's talking about the cross. That God might rescue, and those are the exact words. It's the first time in the Gospel of John. He says it at the end of verse 15, that everyone who believes, who puts their eyes on this, who acts on it, who stands on it, who sees it as the truth of God, everyone who believes in him, the Son of Man, may have eternal life. And you see, what magnifies this love of God is that this isn't for the best and the brightest. This isn't, this isn't for all those who, you know, went to the Olympics and won medals. This isn't just for the heads of faculty and heads of nations and those with enough money who can buy their way into schools. This isn't for the elite alone. Everyone's broken. We live in a broken world. And if you haven't discovered that in yourself, you need to understand that what magnifies this love is that it is a love that is poured out 
on a hostile people. It's devoted to people who are hostile to him. Paul picks this up himself in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And in verse 8, he says, Rarely will one die for a just person. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. That got me at the very beginning when I first read it. It wasn't because I was trying that God said, Here, let me help you. Come on, I see you trying. I'll give you a hand up. No, he comes to me in the depths. And you too. That's how great and gracious, gracious is his love. In chapter 3, verse 18, we read, and this is just verse 17, he says, he sent, verse 16, he gave him, verse 17, he sent him, and then verse 18, whoever does not believe, you see, the only way you can prove it's true is to believe it. But if you do not believe, you're condemned already. And I want to set aside a myth that somehow has caught root in most Christians and certainly in the world that you live your life and at the end, there's a judgment. And, uh, you know, if you were a little bit better, you might squeak through or slip past. But the fact is, is that the Bible teaches it's already broken. The judgment has already been ta taken place. Death is the judgment. We're all condemned. Not one is righteous. No, not one. This is a rescue mission. This is not a recovery. This is a rescue in Jesus because of God's great love. In chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, just before that, those verses, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, uh, I'm going to go away and you, and you won't be able to come with me. And it really shakes them up. They're very upset because um, everything, they've, they've pinned everything on Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, uh, you'll be all right, you know. And Peter says, no, we're not going to be all right. Where are you going? I want to be with you. I will lay down my life for you, Peter says. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're, you're going to deny me. And then he says something he had never said to them. He talks about his death and he also talks about what they can hope for in him. And in the very first verse, he says, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He comforts them. He says, be at peace. That's pretty amazing. He says, my word is as God's word. In other words, you believe in God, believe in me. And then he goes on to tell them that when he returns, it's to get them, and there's a place for them. They've not been forgotten. They've not been abandoned. And then, of course, he says those famous words, I am the way. When they're saying, where 
are you going? We do not know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's love. So loved, he gave. Jesus testifies, brings the truth that God's love is a desire of God. It's the will of God, the purpose of God. Jesus represents and embodies the heart of God. As I mentioned, verse 16, he gave, is followed in verse 17 by he sent. In verse 37 of chapter 18 that we looked at, was born is followed by I have come into the world. The point is, is that sending is a major theme in the Gospel of John. In fact, 60 times in the Gospel of John, the word send or sent is used. Two words are used very exclusively. For the Father, a word for send is used 44 times, only of the Father, always in the expression and on the lips of Jesus. Him who sent me, the Father who sent me. He who sent me. Jesus is the sent one. Why is that important? Because of Jewish agency. It's very clear in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the agent of the Father, or to put it in more friendly or comfortable terms, he's the representative. That's not uncommon in Jewish history. The son could be the agent of the father when the father himself could not attend something of a lawful gathering in which he himself had to be. He could send his son as an agent. And there's even parable of that where the son is the agent, the representative. And in Jewish institution of agency, this is the cardinal rule. He sends, he who is sent is as the one who sends him. He who is sent is is as the one who sends. So in other words, Jesus goes as the Father. And in fact, in the Gospel of John in chapter 3 and in chapter 13, God has put all authority into the hands of his Son. He is the, I love this word, I only get to use it every once in a while, plenipotentiary of the Father. That means all-powerful. And he acts in the name of the Father. That's why when you read in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like this. It's very typical. I come not in my own name, but in the name of him who sent me. I act not on my own authority, but in the authority of him who sent me. I come not in my own glory or for my own glory, but for him who sent me. And then he even says things like this, very, very prominent. If you believe in me, well, Jesus first says, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. I speak the truth, I'm trustworthy, believe in me. But then Jesus says, believe not in me, If you believe in me, you believe not in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is the revelation, the expression, the presence, the activity of God. Why? Because Jesus does not do anything on his own. See, he's totally acting on behalf of the Father. And that's why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father 
are one. That's powerful because that means that Jesus' love is God's love. Jesus loves because the Father loves. You know, we... um, The sending stresses the fact that God pursues us. God seeks us. God comes to us. We don't go to him. He comes to us. It's a major theme that expresses how much God loves us. I was reminded this week of Michael Lope's message a couple weeks back where he said, you know, it's not like God FaceTimes or Skypes us. If God is at the top of the ladder, and this is pictured, you know, when we think of Jacob's ladder or even in John chapter 1 where, you know, there's a vision of a ladder reaching up into heaven. If God's at the top of that ladder, he comes down to us at the bottom of the ladder in Jesus. In fact... Listen, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 6 to the end of that chapter, verse 11, he says, he who was equal with God divested himself of all of that authority and rank. He emptied himself, and what does it say he became? He became a slave. It often says servant, which is just another translation, but really fundamentally, it should be interpreted slave or translated slave, and I'll tell you why. Because crucifixion is reserved for the lowest level of class, and that's a slave. And what does verse 11 say? He went to the cross, and then this extraordinary thing, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Him who was crucified, him who's a slave, him who is the lowest of us, that's the message of the gospel. How could we ever doubt that God loves us? It's easy for us to see how he could love others. The hard part for us is to personalize it and say, He loves me. You see, Jesus didn't just give his son. He sent his son to represent God. It's as though he said, be my agent in my name, in my authority, express my will. And then the third thing I want us to see is he expresses his love in the words, his one and only son. Give you a quick picture of the father's love. In the Bible, Isaac is an only son, the beloved son of Abraham, even though there was another birth, but it was his one and only son. And we see that belovedness repeated in Genesis 22. Isaac, his son, Jacob, dual name, had a strong affection for Joseph. 
In Genesis 37, 3, loved more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And you'll find this interesting because in antiquity, and Plutarch talks about this, that the, a beloved child is the love often of a parent who neither has nor can have another child. So it becomes the be beloved child in that sense. I want to give you just two quick examples. Herodotus in his histories, you've all heard of the battle of the Greeks against Xerxes and the Persians at Thermopylae. Some of you saw the movie 300. Leonidas was the Spartan leader. It was a, a collection of, of Greeks, but Leonidas wanted to send all the auxiliaries away. In fact, a man by the name of Megistius, who was like a like a prophet or a seer, had told Leonidas of their doom, that they would die in this battle. And so Leonidas, because he wanted the fame and the glory of standing alone as Spartans against, uh, he sent all the auxiliaries away, and that included Megistius, but Megistius refused, and this is what Herodotus says, Though told to depart, Megistius refused. You see, he had an only son, a monogenes, which is the exact same word that John uses in his gospel, twice in the first chapter, once in the third chapter, an only begotten son, if you will. An only son, he had an only son present with the army whom he now sent away. In other words, Megistius said, I am going to take your place because you are my beloved son. I'm going to die in your stead. You're in the army, but I'm going to take your place and die fighting so that you can go home. I'm going to save you because you're my only son. But you see, the gospel is different. The only son expresses the great love of the father and instead of being spared because he's the only son, he's given because he's the only son. It's a beautiful thing, the love of God. In fact, John closes out his thoughts in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I hope that you'll feel um, great confidence in the gospel, great confidence. If you choose to love Jesus Christ, to take him as your savior, to live by his words, to stand on them and act on them, to be his disciple, You'll not only know liberty, but you'll know great love. And you who do know him as you enter into this Christmas season, when you get frazzled or harried or frustrated or ponder this month the love of God. Think about it, that it is focused on you, that it, in a real way God came after you, not just somebody else, but after you because he loves you. And Jesus is the emblem of that love. We stand with me.
I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to remind you, I'll be up front here if you would like to come and pray with us. I hope that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll ponder what was said, what was revealed today, what you might not have known, or even more, stand on it and act on it and accept the love of God, his forgiveness, become his child, become his disciple. And if that's the will and desire of your heart, we invite you to come and pray with us about that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Spirit that's poured out on us in Christ, through Christ and on your church. I pray your blessing on everyone here today, that you might be exalted in our hearts and us right with you in the joy that is ours because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom you sent because you love us so. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.